Hey everybody, it's Ken and Glenn. Today, uh, we're we're going to be talking about. Well, you know what? Let me let me read this, Glenn, and see if they can figure out what we're okay. talking about today. Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force who are about to embark upon the Great Crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the German great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Dwight Eisenhower. Guess what it is we're talking about today? Glenn, do you know? I know. What is it? It is D-Day. It is the 75th anniversary of that great day in American history, in the history of World War II, and in all military history everywhere. And just world history in general. Just in general. The peoples, exactly. The, uh, yeah, can you tell us the, the letter you, you read? What is that? So sure, that's, uh, that's the, the special order that, that Ike, Dwight D. Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, uh, had sent to the troops who were about to embark upon the invasion of Europe, uh, crossing the English Channel to open up that second front against the Nazi Germany war-making machine uh, in Europe. And it's an extraordinary piece of writing. You and I have talked on this podcast many, many times about what makes history and how how events of the past are remembered or intentionally misremembered or intentionally counter-remembered, things like that. And I think that I think that Eisenhower, in addition to writing something that he knew was going to actually inspire his troops, because this is an amazing piece of writing. It, it, for, for brevity and clarity, I'll put it up there with the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I also hold the Gettysburg Address much higher than anything ever written by a human. Uh, but this is a pretty darn good thing. But more than trying to inspire his, his people for the days that are about to come, I think this is a conscious bit of trying to frame how this is going to be remembered on Eisenhower's part. I, th- I think you're right. And I think uh, Eisenhower, being the Supreme Allied Commander, of course, wanted to set the overall tone. But when, and I have been very privileged to have interviewed several D-Day vets in my career, and every one of them, and, and, and granted, this is hindsight, but I, right. but I think this is true. This is totally believable. Every one of them said, we knew we were on the verge of something great on this invasion. This was a big deal. We all wanted to be there. We knew we were part of something gigantic. So from the lowliest private and seaman up to 
Dwight, they knew right. that this was a moment to define themselves, to define their place in the world, and to define what the what future generations would think right. of this exact moment. So you 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 have, as you say, interviewed many veterans for you know projects you did at the Atlanta History Center, so on and so forth. Do do you recall if any of them mentioned this order specifically? Oh, they did. What, they did. What, what do they say about it? They just they 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 said well. I, they said I can't quote it to you, but I remember it was right. it was really inspiring. But we also it, it just reinforced what we already felt. Right, right. What we all already felt, and a lot of people because this this note wasn't just something that was read out loud. Right, it was distributed. Folks. Wasn't it, it was distributed. It was a little sheet that was printed up, and much like this facsimile. That's I've right, got right. Exactly. Here. Exactly. Look into your speakers. See, wow, that looks great, Ken. <laughs> the. Uh, and a lot of guys kept that as a souvenir. Yeah, okay, yeah. That was their souvenir from the if you were in the invasion, you kind of folded that up, you read it, folded it up, stuck in your pocket, tucked it in the top of your helmet, and that stuck with you. And a lot of guys brought those home as quote unquote the souvenir right. of having been a part of D-Day because that went to the infantry, that went to the airborne troops, right. that went to the Navy guys, that went to the guys driving the Higgins boats. It went to everyone. Right. As a matter of fact, it became so important, the machine, the mimeograph machine that they printed those on at Allied headquarters in England uh, now sits in the West Point Museum. <laughs> I believe it, I believe it's the West Point Museum. Right. It's wherever the Eisenhower collection is, which right. I think is West Point. Right. It sits there on its own little plinth with a case over it that said, this is the machine that those notes were printed off right. of the two days right. before before D Day. And, and uh, you know, you were just talking about how inclusive it was of branches of services. And I like the fact that it also says that part of what's making this invasion possible, he says it, is our allies who are who are stopping the war machine on another front. Uh, and of right. course, you know, we'd be remiss, and certainly the Russians themselves would say, ah, I remember <laughs> some, we were doing something too. And and the that's not an exaggeration. I mean, the, the, what the Russians were able to do on the Eastern Front and the drives they were making, tying down massive numbers of, of German soldiers, you, they're, they're complementary things. You know, what, what the Russians are doing is what they do best, eating up people over time and space. Right. The Allies are the people that can do something like an amphibious invasion, you know. Yeah. And, and, the, and, you know, the Soviets had been pressuring for this second front to open up in Europe since 42. Right. Since, well, since really the Americans had, had gotten, exactly. gotten involved. And, you know, bless the Russians' hearts and Uncle Joe's, their idea was, well, if you just throw men at it, eventually you'll win. That's, it, not, how the it, and the, exactly. that's not how the Brits and the Americans go to war. Exactly. So they wanted to make sure everything was just right and everything was planned down to the last everything detail. Everything counted. Everything counted. And, you know, to marshal, I mean, the, to marshal the resources, this was the benefit of having America on your side right. is the arsenal of democracy. Make all those ships and those landing crafts and those Higgins boats and those bombers and those ground support and bring them all to a focal point. That was the plan. And it took a little over two years to get to that point, and that hacked the Russians off. But right. but to their credit, once they realized that the invasion, the second front in Europe, had actually opened, within 48 hours, Stalin issued an order for the Soviet army to attack on all fronts, whether they were ready for it or not. And that's where Operation Bagration comes in, which is the Soviet version. It's the Soviet attack to make sure that no German forces can be shifted from one front to right. the other. No and it, and it is one of yeah. the largest offensives the Soviets ever undertook. Right. At the same time 
as D-Day. Right. And I think this, uh, this, this agitation for open that second front as soon as the Americans came in was sort of a tacit admission by Uncle Joe and the Soviet apparatus of how powerful America's might was. But also, I think it reveals how, how over, there was an overestimation. That, that I think maybe they thought, well, now that America's in the war, flip a switch and they're just going to flood things over. Right. You know, they didn't really understand how, <laughs> appropriately enough, they didn't understand how market economy being harnessed for a war effort worked. And, and, and to make <laughs> and good take, stuff takes and, time. And to make good stuff <laughs> takes time. Although, I will, I will let no one defame the Soviet T-34 <laughs> tank. This transmission was good for at least 400 miles before it totally fell apart. Hey, tanks are always designed to be consumable. Absolutely. Anyway, getting back to... Getting back to D-Day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I like what you said about you know, the guys, that that's something that was a universal keepsake, that order from Ike. But also, we should point out that he had prepared another communique in case everything went south. And Glenn he did, and, and, and again, he's, he's also an excellent writer. This one's shorter. This yeah. was scribbled on a piece of paper uh, the day before on July 5th. It's dated July 5th at the bottom. And it was a, uh, he June wrote, 5th. I'm sorry, June 5th. Yeah. Yes, June 5th. And so it says, Our landings in the Cherbourg Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. That's it. That's it. And, oh. and, and on the original handwritten manuscript, the it is mine alone is underlined. Oh, so and, oh. and, and he had tucked this in just in case things went poor. And about three days later, <laughs> he's going through his uniform, probably for his first good night of sleep after the thing, and he finds this note. And I think he gives it to his, his secretary or his driver and says, here, keep that as a memento. Right, and, right. And that is also in a museum, I think, at the West Point Museum. <laughs> exactly. But what I, and what I love about that. It is first off, as you point out, it is mine alone underlined. He was willing to take full responsibility when, let's face it, this coalition was very political. There were there were a lot of avenues he could have taken in the event it had gone south. Churchill could, didn't want to do it because all he could exactly. see was massive defeat. Exactly. So there, there were a lot of people he could have thrown under the bus. But even before before they the forces even left, he said, if it fails, it's my fault. And he's, he's prepared to take it no matter whose fault it is. He's going to say it's his because he is supreme commander. I mean, I think that speaks a lot to uh, to his character. And, and also it speaks to having this just in case speaks to it was not a foregone conclusion. This was going to work. No. And that that is one of Glenn's rules <laughs> Glenn's, of Glenn's history. shaking his fist. Glenn's, in, like, Glenn's rules of history is presentism and looking at the past as though it is all set right. in stone at the time. It, it's I mean, look at us today. What's going to happen tomorrow? We don't know, and we're panicked about it. Same thing in 1944. Right. This is a huge undertaking. This is this this constitutes America's and to a certain extent Britain's main effort in World War II in Europe. This mm -hmm. is it. Everything, not just the day of, but everything that follows up. This is going to be the main effort. This is going to be America's main effort. So a lot is riding on this, which is why this note. Was, was tucked in his pocket. And that's the thing with Eisenhower. This had been planned in super detail for a year and a half. As you, as you said, Ken, he's, mm -hmm. he's, a, he's an excellent leader mm -hmm. 
but at this level, he is a political general coalition builder. He's not yeah. a battlefield commander. He has to pick the right battlefield commanders. And, and resu- did, resu- results, <laughs> results bear out that he did. Yeah. But the great conundrum about Eisenhower at this moment is that in one phrase, because he's in command of the entire allied expeditionary force, the Americans, the British, the Poles, the, the free French, all these guys are under his command. He is, in effect, the most powerful man in the world until he gives the order to go. <laughs> exactly. When he gives the order to go, I'm not exaggerating, there is literally nothing for him to do, people. Right. Every Because he's worked the last year and a half, and it's his job to say when to go. When he tells... When he tells him to go, and everyone runs out of the room to get everything going, he just sits there. Right, and now he's he, now he's he's powerless. Like everyone else, I, I've got to I've got to see if it works. Yeah, he's I've powerless. Got to sit here like everybody. So he, uh, from what I understand, he goes and takes about a twenty minute nap because they had been up the last two days <laughs> right. wondering what the weather was going to do. He takes a twenty minute nap, tries to can't sleep, gets up, and gets his driver, and they drive out to where the airborne guys uh, to to one of the airborne marshalling areas because. Right. The predictions had been that the airborne, the right. three airborne divisions, two American, one British, were going to have at least 50% casualties. And this was tearing everyone at headquarters up. So mm-hmm. he wanted to go out and meet these guys. And that's the picture you see mm-hmm. of Eisenhower, like a soldier standing with his hands in his pockets. He's the commander. <laughs> he can do that. Uh, talking to these elite airborne guys before right. they jump off. Right. And I think also, you know, with that note, when he says, he makes reference to, I have ordered their withdrawal. You know, that's the whole flip side of this. What if he had had to order the withdrawal? I mean, that would have been more difficult and more perilous. A withdrawal? Oh, in the face of a, In of the, the face enemy? of a concerted enemy counterattack? I, I hate to think how horrible that would have been. Well, the airborne troops are written off. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah, exactly. The But yeah, so it's, and, you know, and so many details have been planned. So this, and, and it's important to remember as Ken said, there were millions of men fighting on the Eastern Front when this went down. And and also, the day was important because they did gain a foothold, but all the planning and the preparation went forward to to, to the Object, next weeks right, and months to right. try to take things. And and really, despite Eisenhower's leadership, which was phenomenal, right. despite the meticulous planning as to where each platoon was going to land on the beach <laughs> exactly. and what it was going to do, the plan fell apart. Right. The and, plan fell apart. And, you know, and, he, and that's something I like. But they knew that was going to happen. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you know, you know, modern day people's like, you know, I, I've heard so many justifications for not having a plan because, well, you know, the first casualty in war is the plan, so you don't really need a. It's like, no, actually, you still need the plan. Uh, otherwise, Eisenhower and Co. wouldn't have planned for a year and a half. Right. Recognizing that your plan is going to be subject to the vagaries of the battle is competent military thinking. But without the plan, without the objective of each, you know. Division, regiment, squad, platoon, whatever level, they each know their objective. Even if, even if, like I said with the airborne, you land sticks to the wind. You know, you land all all over Hell's Half Acre and the continent peninsula and all across Normandy. You still know where you're supposed to be. You still know that you've got to get your piece of the thing done. And whether you're doing it on the time schedule it was arranged across the terrain it was supposed to. That was the beauty of this system. Since everyone knew their part, even if the overall mechanism wasn't on the schedule and wasn't where it was supposed to be, they still knew how to make the plan work by improvisation. So, yeah, you yeah. still you still do need the plan. And, and the leadership devolves. When yeah. he says go, it devolves from a four-star general 
to yeah. to staff, sar- staff sergeants and second lieutenants, yeah, yeah. and they pull it off. Yeah. And they pull it off. Um, and, and D-Day, we're talking about D-Day with reverence because this D-Day mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. come to be set in American memory as the great moment in America's World War II experience. And on one hand, in some sense, that is justified. It, it stands as the symbol of mm-hmm. everything that we strove for and, and made. On the other hand, it certainly has delineated things. The first, Ken, you mentioned the, the, the role of the Eastern Front. Right. The entire war in the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the associated landings in southern France a month later. Yeah. Uh, totally forgotten. The, the, the attack. Guess, guess what city fell on June 6, 1944? Rome. Rome. <laughs> but no one cared because the invasion had happened. Exactly. Uh, and, so, and so the memory of D-Day, even in the time... Overshadow starts to overshadow and starts to sort of. I'm not going to say warp because that would be judging right. the role of, of memory and what people think, but it certainly starts to set its own course. Right, um, and it's and it's interesting to see how the memory of D-Day begins to evolve, starting with the day itself with Eisenhower's letter. Right. And you start to move forward, you know, by by the end of the war, the war is over, and people still think of D-Day as as the big as the big event. As, mm-hmm. as the big event. Well, you know, even, you know, one of one of the the more wonderful World War II accounts is the Band of Brothers book and series. There's an episode where uh I think it's the episode where they're in Hagenau. And uh, they're going to make that crossing across the canal to snatch a, a German for interrogation. And, uh, and the newly arrived second Louis who graduated West Point wants to go along with them. And, uh, and they're talking to the guy. And he says, you know, when did you graduate? And he's like hesitant to say. I said, when did you graduate? June 6th. June 6th. Really? They say to him. Because, of course. And so even in that particular show, which is based on, you know, the oral history of the guys that were there, they're ribbing the guy. They're already mythologizing D-Day. They're already saying, oh, that's where we were, D-Day. Where were you? Oh, you were graduating West Point that day? Yeah. Well, you know who else is? Eisenhower's uh, son son graduated graduated in that class. That that speaks to that process you were talking about where where even even then, even six months later after after D-Day, those who took part in themselves already know. That's the thing they, everything's being judged by. They've got the swagger. They've, they've got the swagger. Justifiably so, Justifiably but they've so. got the swagger. But, but but it's, you know, even among the, well, even the guys, you know, who graduated, who graduated, or let's say, for example, West Point that day, they heard the news. Yeah. They knew I'm graduating from BA while other guys that graduated are over there dying right now on the beach to bring this thing to a close. I mean, you... With, without even for an instant minimizing other f- theaters of operation, other battles, other fronts, the fact is this was the important thing that was taking the fight to the Nazi homeland, to, mm-hmm. to Europe. You know, it's, it's great you're fighting up the Italian peninsula. It's great you're liberating Rome. But that's a tough slog, and it continues to be a tough slog up that peninsula, right. you know, until Italy then— Switches sides, kind of, Ish, depending again. on who you're defining as well, the Italian government, government switches sides, exactly. Uh, but uh, but no, so so there is this 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 mythos that even at the time you're, I mean that's the thing you're back in Europe. I mean that's right. You're back you're, in the you're West, going to Paris. and you're going to Paris as as a springboard to go to Berlin. I mean you know you you, you got to be in Europe to get to Germany, and all all respect the other fronts. This is what's going to bring the madman down. This is what's going to bring Hitler down. 
That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. And we're having to bring every every American can of meat, every bullet, yeah. every helmet, every gallon of gas has to come 3,000 miles across an ocean. Exactly. Uh, and land on a beach, on a beach, right. and get increasingly longer yeah, well, exactly. away from the beach. And to this, is, of the course, it's got to, 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 to sort of fill that in for you folks listening. has to land on a beach because we didn't take a deep water port. As part of the operations, now we wanted to, we wanted to, but but the German garrison at Cherbourg had something to say about that, and then Antwerp was a whole another deal as well. But but once again, that shows the versatility of the system. Right. You know, okay. Well, we've got these Duck Ws, these wonderful amphibious trucks. Well, we're just going to ferry supplies off the ships onto the beaches and start driving them where they need to be. And you know, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that it was primarily African American troops who were doing that. The Red Ball Express. Right. You know, they're they're keeping the bullets and gas coming. To to put it bluntly, the bullets, yep. gas, and food. And as long as that's happening, we're going to keep pressing forward. And they only and the allies really only stop when there's a, a when they out literally outrun their supply line yeah. and and then you get Baston and all those things. Mm-hmm. But we're not we're not to the seventy fifth anniversary of Baston yet. We're still <laughs> on D Day and and as as we're sitting here thinking about D Day, I'm going to bet every single listener, <laughs> all four of you, have some. <laughs> wow, idea. we've doubled our audience. We've doubled the audience. Wow, statistics show. <laughs> Um, you know something about D-Day. You have some sort of image in your mind when we say it because, pop- again, popular memory and, and this right. group consciousness has created this sense. Now, a lot of and it, and it's interesting. I've, I've actually collected some items that sort of show that personally. Probably the biggest thing that happened is The Longest Day. Great movie from 1962. Right. And I have this theory that I'm going to share with all of you now. <laughs> That when you see the popular culture, and especially the movies, the audience determines what the movie's about. And that seems simple, but but bear me out. Yeah. Longest Day gives the very much overall, here's what happened, planning the invasion, the big picture thing. Because in 1962, all those vets are still alive. Right. They've got, well, the ones who are still alive have gone, they've come home, they've right. gotten families, and they saw the war from, you know, from the very front of their of their face, they did not right. know the big picture. And a couple of books may have been published, but this movie gives them what they've always wanted. What role did I play right. in this larger scheme of things? So The Longest Day looks at the generals and all the, the, the decisions yeah. and things like that, and that's what The Longest Day is about. And it's pretty accurate. It's a fantastic movie, and a lot of it is actually filmed on the original right. site. Right. So I, with, so I with love it. some of the guys that actually did it. Some of the guys. And so that Longest Day sort of sets the tone. And yeah. and then you, you start, so that's, you know, 25th anniversary comes. Right, guys are still around that fought it, and then you get to 1994, which is the 50th anniversary. Well, the World War II generation is still mostly here, but they're getting old. It is time to start setting that legacy. Setting that legacy, right? You get the Greatest Generation book begin to be published, and right. things start to shift. And the the cover of the 1994 June 6th anniversary 50th Time magazine is a picture of Eisenhower, right? Right, who said, as you said set the tone in the right. first place. And the cover reads, The Man Who Beat Hitler. Oh, wow. The Man Who Beat Hitler. And inside the, the article begins, Ike's Invasion. Wow. Right? So it's still that big yeah. picture view. Yeah. Because these guys, the, the actual vets who are there, they still revere their leader. Right. But they start to fade. And, and those of us who come after 
are starting to revere these vets. Right. The boots on the ground, the guys on the decks, the guys in the airplanes, the grunts, if you will. We start to look at them and go, wow, no, you're the ones who did the work and, and, and things. So then you get to 2004, which is only 10 years later, the 60th anniversary, and the front of the Time magazine has a has that classic Omaha Beach pick of the guys charging forward. Right. It's there. It's not one guy. Right. It's the impossible. It's the impossible mission, and it right. says 24 hours that saved the world. And it's a and and we've made that shift. Uh huh. It's about the guys who fought the war. It's about. It's not about the leaders. It's about the vets themselves and their experiences. What brought this change about, you may ask? <laughs> You've heard of a movie called Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> Indeed. You've heard of a miniseries called Band of Brothers. Exactly. You may have even played a game called Call of Duty. <laughs> All of those came out between the 50th anniversary and the 60th anniversary. Right. And that incredibly concentrated popular culture mass certainly shifted public perceptions of what D-Day was and what role it played. And of course, all those movies and those video games helps everyone know that the only thing that ever happened in... Here's here's the history of World War II. The Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. America invades France. We drop an atomic bomb. The end. <laughs> exactly. Right? Here it is. There, there's the history of World War II. And, and those events and this popular culture has... That sort of has is what set how the general populace thinks of right. the war, and right. and therefore not only centralizing D Day the way the vets and, and Eisenhower did, but hyper centralizing it right. in the in the minds of post World War II Americans. Right. At, at some point in some conversation I had in the past, let's say five to fifteen years, uh, <laughs> someone was I was talk, we we're talking about uh, about Band of Brothers, and uh, the person made the comment, "Oh yeah, yeah we're all we're all uh, Dick Winters wins World War II single handedly." And and I got what the person was saying that you know, but I was also, I was also like, "Okay, yeah, the point you're making, I'm hoping, is that there were other people involved, but you've got to realize the power." of media on memory, which is what you were speaking of, yep. the power of media on memory. What what media is is dictating the memory. And you know, it begins, like we said, with this with this piece of paper. Uh, you know, Ike's order to the troops, and it follows up with, you know, the photos on the beach. It follows up with the broadcasts from the beach. And wasn't it a Georgian, as a matter of fact? Uh, Wright Bryan, an Atlantan, made the first live broadcast reporting that the invasion had taken place. Exactly. He, he was he was on an airborne plane. Yeah. Did not jump with the guys. Right. Followed them over. The plane comes back, lands in England. He jumps out of the plane, runs <laughs> runs to the the radio shack, right. and begins dick, begins basically giving his report, and they start broadcasting it like just a couple hours later exactly. uh, in the States. As a matter of fact, it's how the Secretary of War found out. <laughs> That the invasion had That's begun right. because the he heard The Secretary of War of the United States of America <laughs> found out by listening to a broadcast yeah. by a Georgian, <laughs> which is awesome. That's how secret it was. How, yeah, well, actually, that is how secret it was. And the, and, I mean, they knew it was coming, right? But they didn't know exactly, exactly. when it was going to go uh, down. So, so that that part, you know, those are the existing media of that time. From the instant of the invasion, the media start. And I'm saying this is a, a bad thing. Yeah. I'm just saying, realize that. So when, you know, all you people out there who play Call of Duty or watch Band of Brothers, re- realize that's not the whole story. That's not the only story. And and because, like say in the case of HBO's Band of Brothers, it was so well told right, and was so well produced and with 
you know, Saving Private Ryan, a fictionalized version with incredibly true elements, it was so well told, the story is always going to be what sticks in the mind. The well-told story mm-hmm. is always going to be what sticks in the mind. So that's why, and now let's segue into what we do for a living, that's why it is so important that museums and history centers and living history interpreters do tell the story in an honest and engaging way. And, you know, part of what, you know, I have a lot of problems with Stephen Ambrose, and a lot of problems with him. However, the body of work he collected, the stories, the individual stories, the personal stories, the men being honest and saying the things that he collected, that's an invaluable body of work. And that is why the movie ad- or the miniseries adaptation was so effective. You know, it's, it's, it's visceral and it connects with exactly basic fundamental. Exactly. There, there's something in, in each story you see in there that, as our good friend Freeman Tilden says in Interpreting Our Heritage, connects with the, the viewer's or listener's experience. There's something that you find relatable. And so, boom, now it sticks with you. I think aside from the geopolitical military objectives that D-Day achieved from the Allied side, one of its, uh, we call it unintended consequences, probably not even thought of consequences, is that this story is one of those legacies, just the story of D-Day. Absolutely. Even aside Absolutely. from, even aside from the military objectives, it's, wow, what an amazing story. The Allies marshaled this, did this, and it came off this way with all of these crazy hitches, and it still worked. It's just a compelling story. And the Germans had a story, too. We haven't even gotten <laughs> exactly. to that. I haven't even gotten to that story. But, uh, but yeah, and so, you know, I, I, I think we're about to <laughs> I think, oh, yes, but yes, they reached the part that they sounds like the they can stop. But uh, so, <laughs> so, so here we are, the 75th anniversary, when you are consuming the media about the great event, uh, whether it's a movie, whether right. it's a, an ad for you know, Coca-Cola and lawn chairs, whatever it is, just just kind of think. Just D-Day is a fantastic thing to learn about, to to feel good about, to to have memory. Memory is not bad, absolutely. But, but just be cognizant, kind of ponder to yourself, huh? How has this shaped how this event actually took place? Absolutely. And and tune in next time for other wonderful stories from. Then again with Ken and Glenn. Bye. Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center.